morning. I know as was mentioned earlier, we probably have a few visitors or just faces we haven't seen in a little while. We're very glad you're with us this morning. And as always, it's good good to be here. And uh, I don't know what Van was talking about. Y'all better bring your egg game with the chili cook-off or I will be severely disappointed. Um, I don't want to split the church and I haven't bought any trophies, but don't... Don't not bring the A game. That's all I'm saying. As a connoisseur of chili, I look forward greatly to the chili cook-off on Saturday. Um, as for our, our lesson this morning, uh, last Sunday, last Sunday we began a new series of lessons uh, talking about the idea of ministry. And, and the thing about it was that this idea of ministry was not really kind of how we typically think about it. It wasn't just exclusive to somebody who held the title of minister, uh, but it was based on the idea of personal ministry. Uh, on the kind of ministry we find in the Bible. And, and so last week we looked at passages like uh, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, where Scripture talks about building up the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 5, in the last few verses of Colossians 4, where Paul tells several people uh, some variation of the phrase, fulfill your ministry. And coincidentally enough, of course, the topic surfaced again on our Wednesday night study. And uh, as we were looking through the book of Philemon, when Paul talked about a young man being useful for ministry. And so ministry in these contexts is not a, a, some kind of holy word that, that only uh, priests or pastors or deacons or, or ministers can do. But it, the way the Bible uses it often is it's just talking about the simple act of really of serving one another. And so I want us to think about ministry as this form of really just serving one another or ministering to one another. And so when we began last week, we asked this question, what is your ministry what is your ministry and so we began our series looking at uh, different examples of ministry in the bible and last week we talked about what we called the the ministry of edification the the building up the correcting the learning the discipleship that happens and we looked at the example of apollos in acts 18 and 19 and just the impact that edification can have in uh, a ministry of edification is the work of teaching of correcting, of discipling, and it's a work that it's, at its core is really very conversational. I mean, how else would I work with somebody if not talking to them? But by contrast, our, our focus this morning is actually going to be on a work that's quite different. Uh, it's going to be on a work that's actually built on silence. You may be saying, well, how can I minister to somebody in silence? Well, uh, I want to start our lesson looking at the shortest verse in the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 11, verse 35. John chapter 11, verse 35. It is notable for being in the King James Version, the shortest verse in the entire English Bible. In John chapter 11, verse, 30, verse 35 reads, Jesus wept. Now, Jesus wept in and of itself doesn't do us a whole lot of good as far as understanding what's going on there. So we're going to begin our reading in verse 30. From John chapter 11, beginning in verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? 
They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? But of course, our focus, as I mentioned there, is really going to be just that verse 35 where it says that Jesus wept. Because what I want us to ultimately focus on is Jesus' reaction to this whole situation. But before we can really unpack and understand Jesus' reaction and what's going on here, uh, I want to sort of set the scene and understand the context and who, who's doing what and what all these people are and what's going on. Uh, Jesus is, of course, Jesus, the Son of God. But verse, tells, verse 2 verse two of John 11 tells us that, that Mary, it was who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so Mary and her sister Martha, which we know from the story in the other Gospels as, as the woman who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair just out of her adoration for him. It says it was Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And they were from the small town of Bethany. And Bethany is, is somewhat near Jerusalem, so Jesus would have familiarity with the area and the family. And they seem to know Jesus well at this point. They seem to know who Jesus is. They seem to have a, a friendship with him, a relationship with him. In verse 5 of the chapter actually tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Hey, I told y'all we'd figure this thing out eventually. So verse 5 says that Jesus had such a love for them that he actually stayed in this place where he was when he found out Lazarus was sick. And Jesus touched and healed and changed the lives of many, many people in his ministry. We see from numerous stories in the gospel accounts. But stories like this, they tell us that this relationship is a little different. That there was something special. These were not just people who passed in the street, who, like the woman who touched the hem of his garment and was healed and Jesus moved on. But it actually says that Jesus, he knew these people. He was friends with them. He grew close with them. He had relationships with them. They were, they were friends of his, and he cared about them very deeply. And so when he, when he hears the sickness of Lazarus in verse 5, it says he's, he's on his ministry, but he actually stays in that town for a couple days. And later, when he hears Lazarus is again sick and sick to the point of dying, he comes to the town, and he stays with them. And when Mary comes to him weeping and sobbing and mourning the loss of her brother in verse 33, it says Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit he is deeply troubled in his spirit by her grief and even though yes thessalonians first thessalonians 4 13 tells us that famous line we do not grieve as those who have hope do not misunderstand it as we do not grieve because we see here jesus with mary and with martha grieved the loss of their brother lazarus but what we do know as Christians is that when we grieve, we do so with hope. But that doesn't mean we don't hurt. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is sensitive to that pain, that he attends to that hurt. And in verse 35, it says specifically that he wept with those who were weeping. And what I find so amazing about this, this one passage is that nobody... Nobody who ever took on mortal form and walked the earth as a human ever had their sights more set on the kingdom than Jesus. 
Nobody was more aware of the importance of spiritual things over material things and, and more focused on the next life instead of this life than Jesus. But you know what? When someone's life on this planet came to an end, Jesus still wept. He, he did not tell them, oh, no, no, you know, don't, don't weep because we have hope. And he, you see, I'm going to resurrect him again and do this great miracle. Because when someone's grieving, that is not the time for explanations. That is not the time for defenses or excuses or, or reasoning with somebody. When somebody is weeping, the biblical example, the Christian, the Christ-like example, is to weep with them. It's also interesting to me that in verse 36 and 37 of this passage that, that now is the time the Jews say, now we can catch him. Ah, if you had not been here earlier, you were healing all those blind people. Why did you let this man you love so much die? They almost seem to be kicking him when he is down, trying to attack him at a moment of vulnerability. But Jesus says, you know what? In the midst of all of this that is going on, it says Jesus wept. I'm going to catch up on our slides here. Sorry. I say this because dealing with death is in many senses and ways a natural part of life. James 4.14 tells us, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And because of this limited, fragile human nature of our existence, it is in our nature to sometimes grieve. We can almost be assured or certain that at some point in our lives we will experience grief. Or loss. But just as it, as it is in our nature to grieve, it is in God's nature to provide comfort. We see this because even from this passage that we read, in the midst of everything going on, when he's sitting there with Mary and with Martha, Jesus mourns the death of Lazarus. And, and I would say that is actually the divine part of Jesus coming out. That is his God-like nature coming out. Because if we see all throughout Scripture, God is the great comforter. He provides comfort through his Son who, who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, as we read in Isaiah 53.4. He provides comfort through the Holy Spirit, who, who John 14.26 actually explicitly names as the comforter. John 14, 26 calls the Holy Spirit the comforter who God sent to the disciples to teach them, to instruct them, and to comfort them. It says that he sent the Spirit just to be with them, and that would bring them comfort. But whether through his Son, or through the Spirit, or through his angels, or through pillars of cloud and pillars of fire, in a multitude of ways all throughout Scripture, God so many times with his people provide comfort simply through his presence. Consider, for example, the, the very name God gives Moses in the burning bush. Of course, we know this story. It's where Moses' journey begins. It's where all the excitement in Exodus starts. When Moses is told he must stand up before Pharaoh and he, must, he, he feels burdened with this heavy task of, of demanding the release of his people... That, that he, a slave baby born in a basket but just happened to be raised by the right family, should go before this man who has declared himself the God King of the Nile and say, I want you to let all of my people go. Moses is quite understandably scared and intimidated by that whole process. 
And when God tells Moses to go and do this thing, Moses says, well, who should I say has sent me? And God responds with a powerful, powerful name in Exodus 3.14. God responds by saying, I am who I am. Which many of us, at least if you're like me, think of as the great, I, because I said so in the Bible. If a parent tells their kid to do something, if your parents were like my parents and your kids were like I was, child asks why, the parent says, because I said so. I don't have to explain to you why, because I'm your parent. And so I think sometimes we view this interaction with Moses, Moses saying, well, who should I say tell them? And God says, you tell them I am sending you. What do you, what do you mean, who? I don't, I don't need to explain my authority to you. I don't need to explain my position to you. And so I think sometimes we can kind of read it that way, but I actually think this interaction is, is so much deeper than that. There's this funny way that ancient Hebrew works, and I don't want to get into the details of it, but when God says, I am who I am, he's actually not just saying, I am who I am. He's saying, I was who I was, I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. And it's interesting because this, this name, this name spoken to, to Moses as Yahweh, it actually reflects an aspect of God's character. Because you see, God is telling Moses that the most important thing that he does as God is to simply be. God says, what you need to know about me is that I am, I was, and I will be. My presence is all you need. I exist. I am here. I am ready to help and to act. And you know what? I always have been and I always will be. Because at the time of Exodus 3, Moses is very worried. Moses is very scared. But it is in God's very nature to comfort his people. And as I said, in many times and in many different ways, he provides this comfort simply through his presence. It's in verse 12, just a little bit before he declares this name to Moses. It's in verse 12 of Exodus 3 when, when Moses first raises his objections to this whole mission. God gives him this assurance, this simple assurance. He says, I will be with you. It's the same thing he told Isaac or Jacob, the son of Isaac, in Genesis 31-33. It's the same thing he tells Gideon, the, the one, probably the one hero in the entire book of Judges, in Judges 6, 17, when Gideon says, if, if I have found favor in your sight, give me some sort of sign. God says the sign is that I will be with you. It's the same thing he tells Joshua in the very famous or well-known opening of Joshua chapter 1, where over and over God issues this line, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, only be strong and courageous. The one time God gives Joshua a reason for his strength and the reason for his courage is he says, Joshua, because I will be with you. It is the same words given to the prophet Isaiah to tell the people of Israel when they fear that the enemies are at their gates. When they fear some of the things that we actually talked about this very morning in our Bible class in Joel, the enemies and the locusts and the plagues and the, all of these things God can do to them and punish them. When they fear the enemy at their doorstep, Isaiah 41.10 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. It is, of course, the rather significant last words of Jesus. 
you know, for several weeks, a little while ago, we talked about the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and 19 and 20 and going and making disciples and baptizing. And, but after all that, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you. When? Always. Why always? Because God was, God is, and God will be. Because it is, it is actually a very essence of God's nature to comfort his people when they are mourning. To comfort his people when they are suffering. To comfort his people with only his presence. Because that is the power and the magnitude of the God that we worship. His presence brings comfort to us. He abides in us. He lives among us. He is with us because he, he is the God who was and is and is to come. It is in his very name and it is a part of his very nature that God comforts us with his presence. So if it is truly in his nature to comfort us and to comfort us just by being with us, through sending his spirit or sending his son or, or simply by abiding when, with us, if that is how God comforts his people, well, then the question I, I sort of go to is, well, what about us? Because I am not God, right? I'm not the one who was and is and is to come. So what, what can I do? To use our terms from the very beginning, how, how can I minister to somebody who is grieving or suffering? Well, I want to look at one last passage before we close this morning. Look at Job. Turn to the book of Job. to be at the end of chapter 2. The book of Job is known pretty prominently for the sufferings and the grieving of its major character and of Job's unparalleled patience and perseverance throughout all of these things that happens to him, so much so that we might know of the expression, the patience of Job. But it's actually not Job I want to look at this morning. We're going to take a, a, a glance at Job's friends. Look at Job chapter 2, as I said, towards the end of the chapter. Look at Job 2, beginning in verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, friend of Job, I guess. They made an appointment together to come to show sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voice and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Job's friends will eventually do a great deal of talking. In fact, it's Job's friends talking that takes up the most of the volume of the book of Job. But when someone is grieving, and when someone is suffering, there certainly will come a time for talking. As we mentioned earlier, there will come a time for reasoning, for explaining, for defending, for, for comforting by way of words or explanation. But before all that, there is almost always a time to simply be with somebody, to be silent the power of the way Job's friends deal with his grief is they actually respect the room for Job to grieve. 
and they say, what we're going to do is we're just going to sit here and we're going to mourn with you until you are ready to do something else. And the text tells us it was seven days and seven nights before even Job opened his mouth to speak. Because again, Job's friends respected Job, and so they allowed him to be the first one to say anything. They said, we'll, we'll talk about this whenever you're ready to talk about this. You recall when we began this morning, I mentioned that quite unlike the ministry of edification, we were going to talk about something that was actually rooted in silence. Because sometimes when people are suffering, all they need from us is our presence. Because just as that's how God comforts, and it's, it's an essence, it's the core of who God is, there is biblical precedence and example and instruction for us as Christians to comfort our brothers and sisters when they weep simply by being there with them. And you'll notice Job's friends weren't walking down to his house to ask for a cup of sugar when they stumbled upon his grief. They weren't saying, you know, I'd really like to go play cards with Job today. Let's go see what he's doing. No, it says when they heard his grief, they made an appointment. They booked time in their schedule away from their lives, away from their families. They probably didn't take a horse. They probably didn't take a bus. They probably walked quite a journey because the text tells us Job had great land and much livestock. So we can assume he was, he was not close to anybody. But his friends journeyed there to sit with Job. And just be with him. To grieve with him. <clears throat> they mourn with him in sackcloth and ashes. And they grieve with Job. And it's a powerful kind of love that does not feel the need to fill dead air with words. Isn't it? If, if maybe by way of illustration I could explain a little bit. I, you, my one-year-old is already at this phase uh, where if I'm not watching him, he suddenly thinks I don't love him anymore. It, just the other day, he was going to grab an action figure thing off the shelf or some book like he had done thousands of times. But he was walking over there, and as he's walking over the shelf, he looks over his shoulder to look at me and like, Hey, are you, are you looking at this? I'm about, this is really impressive. I'm about to grab this book, and you really need to be watching. This, I know I've done it six times in the last 30 minutes, but this is really impressive. And if you're not watching, I'm going to get very upset because clearly you don't love me anymore. Because that's what children think. If you're not watching them, it's clearly because you have decided you no longer care about them. And I've actually witnessed firsthand as they get a little bit older. This changes a tiny bit. I've, when they start uh, becoming, a, I'm not even going to say proficient, but maybe passably competent at conversation, now everything they say is just the gospel. And if you're not listening with rapt attentiveness, it is clearly because you don't love them, right? All of us have seen the six or the eight or nine-year-old tugging at their mom's uh, shirt while, heaven forbid, you're trying to have a conversation with another adult. What are you doing? I know how to speak, and everything I have to say is very important. Because they're children. And I, and I actually even remember feels not that long ago, but I suppose it is, being in that awkward high school phase where I'm just starting to make friends and even maybe try to date a little bit and having to fill every single moment of sort of that first date awkwardness because, oh my goodness, if this woman across from me has ever stopped talking, it's clearly because she's realizing she does not like me very much. 
And so you just have to vomit all of your thoughts and things and come to mind out because oh, no, there cannot be a moment of silence or she's going to run away. But you know, now that I'm married, I cannot tell you the countless hours we've spent together, either watching a movie on the couch or just into the car riding back and forth to somewhere, where there's the look, maybe a passing moment, where she knows I love her more than anything else in the world, and I know she loves me, but nobody has said a word. Because there is a deep and powerful emotion that can actually be communicated in complete silence. And it takes a maturity and a level of understanding that doesn't just quite come very easily. And it may seem like it's on the completely other end of the spectrum as far as emotions go, but when somebody is grieving, sometimes all they need from us is actually complete silence. They don't need us to do anything. There might come a time for meals, but that's not yet. There might come a time for you to uh, clean the house for them because they've got things going on, but that's not really yet either. There's oftentimes when people are grieving, what they simply want from you is your presence. There's situations where, where words would actually devalue the emotions going on. The, in Christian counseling circles, I got way behind, sorry. The Christ, in Christian counseling circles, the expression for what we've been talking about is called ministry of presence. It's what we see in the text with Jesus, with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It's observed in the real world as, as an effective and necessary kind of comfort to those who are in the early stages of grieving and suffering, but it's also incredibly biblical. There are countless times in Scripture where the only assurance God gives to his people is that he is with them. And he wouldn't say it if it didn't mean something. He wouldn't say that over and over and over to his people who he's trying to imbue with faith or with courage or with strength. If God's presence among us didn't carry weight, if it wasn't important. And in the same way, as Christians, as those created in God's image, we can bring comfort to people simply by our presence. And so I want us to consider in our lives the opportunity for us to have ministry of presence. When Jesus came to, to Mary, you know, Jesus knew what was going to happen when he came to Mary and Martha's house. He knew he was going to go to the tomb and roll the tomb away and, and call out Lazarus and do this great miracle. It's not that he didn't know he was going to come back to life and just spur of the moment thought, hey, there's a good fix to this solution. <laughs> Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus is all-knowing. But you know what? When he saw those he cared about grieving, Jesus wept. When Job's friends sat down and witnessed the, the depth of Job's sorrow and the volume of his grief, they decided to be present with Job and Job until he was ready to do something else. And as we leave this morning and we go out into the world... There are so many people who are suffering. This is not limited to Christians. This is not limited to, to the church. There are people who are suffering, and they go through every day hoping for somebody to give them even the tiniest glimmer of good news, of something to be hopeful for, of something positive to look forward to. 
And what's amazing is as Christians, we ought to have that good news. I know it's like VBS, maybe not 101, but 102 that we tell our kids, you know, the gospel is actually this word that means good news. But you know what would be so much better is if we taught our kids that it means good news by showing it and treating it as good news. Because there are many who are suffering who do not know God. There are many who are suffering apart from the presence of God, apart from the presence of the spiritual body who is the church to comfort them and to be with them. But the gospel brings good news. If you are with us this morning and you do not know the good news of Jesus Christ, if you are looking for comfort, if there's anything we can do for you, we ask that you